Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host, Michael. I'm Corey. And I'm Marie. And today we're talking about Stephen Burst's novel, To Reign in Hell. Rain in Hell is a retelling of the biblical story of the war in heaven, yep. as you might guess from the title. Yep. <laughs> Specifically, Milton's rendition of it, kind of, not really. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's very clearly drawing on Paradise Lost, but it's also very clearly playing with a lot of what's in Paradise Lost. Um, the source material is obvious, but... The story isn't, if that makes sense. And I mean, as far as, I, I don't really know if there's a whole lot of other versions of that story anyway. Maybe I'm just, like, in the dark on that, but I feel like he's probably just going to make stuff up because there's not a whole lot to know. It's one of those stories that John Milton kind of perfected it. And so even though it's been done a million times, it's always been very kind of cheap, cheesy very poor pop culture attempts at recreating it. So you're talking about like modern day movies yeah. that reference that story as mm-hmm. opposed to like contemporary text to John Milton being cheesy. And- yeah, contemporary, <laughs> contemporary to us. Also, Milton doesn't spend the majority of Paradise Lost talking about the war in heaven. It's, it's the lead up to the yeah. war in heaven, mm-hmm. which it shares with this, this text. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The easiest way to describe terrain in hell is the war in heaven as seen through the lens of a labor dispute. <laughs> yeah, that's actually kind of true. <laughs> um, I, I think it's worth pointing out, Brust is quite left-leaning. I believe he identifies as a Trotskyist, but don't quote me on that. I might be remembering it wrong. Um, I, I could see how you'd interpret it that way, but when I read it, I focused less on that aspect of it. More on the the war in heaven was just this giant, unfortunate misunderstanding. It's really, if you do any kind of medicine in Canada, it's like CanMed's rule communicator. Good example of when it doesn't work out. Because really, if two people had just actually talked to each other and actually exchanged clear words, this wouldn't have happened, basically. That's one thing I kind of like about the story, though. Like The whole thing ultimately, as you said, comes down to two people who needed to talk not talking. Like It's a very interesting story about the importance of communication and the danger of miscommunication. I mean, some of the miscommunications that happen happen by accident or by circumstance, but there is at least one character who actively manipulates people to try to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And Ultimately, that is to the detriment of everyone else. Then it's like that Adele song. Yeah, that reference flew right over my head. Rumor has it. I know she's not the first one to say that. Still going over my head. Well, I know what you're talking about, Marie. So Now it's in my mind. So we have Yahweh as one of the first created beings that came out of the chaos. Wasn't he the first one? I thought he was, like, the very first one. Like, he's the first of the first seven. He ultimately claims that, but there's kind of some dispute. It's unclear if he actually was. Yeah. But he does take that mantle Mm -hmm. and... 
demands that the other created beings and the angels that followed recognize him as such. So the backstory to this is that there is effectively order and chaos. Order first there's chaos. Order (laughs) is things that actually have structure, have shape, have form. In this case, they refer to them as the angels. Um, And then the angels create a place called heaven, which is an actual physical world with trees and rocks and plants and water and the whole nine yards. And it's all kind of wrought out of the chaos. Yeah, that's basically forced or forged out of the chaos. Um, now, there have been, at this point in the novel, there have been three waves. And these are periods where the chaos, chaotic forces are particularly turbulent and they're particularly violent. Sort of like an ocean. Yeah. But the thing about the, the waves is, they're all, while they're times of great destruction and great violence, they are also times of creation. So with the first wave you get the initial seven beings. And out of the chaos, they formed heaven, which is where they live, which has walls that shield them from the chaos. The second and third wave are where those walls are breached because the forces of chaos become even stronger. And when the walls are breached, again, destruction happens, other beings are in turn created out of them, but existing beings also change. So Leviathan, for example, used to be a a humanoid figure, and she is changed by the forces of chaos into a giant sea serpent. She retains her intelligence, she retains her ability to speak, but her physical form is altered. Mm-hmm. Beelzebub, on the other hand. Whereas <laughs> Beelzebub, who's one of the angels of the second wave, during the third wave gets turned into a dog. Except instead of being the whole cruel, vicious hound of hell, he's a golden retriever. It's the best thing. He, he's easily one of the funnier characters. And Belial, also from the second wave, gets turned into a dragon. <laughs> Yes, and that becomes a plot point later. Yep. <laughs> so the main kind of instigating incident of the plot is Yahweh, who all of the original, the other members of the original seven all respect him because he's very wise. Yahweh comes up with an idea how to help save them from future waves. I just want to say before you kind of carry on the yep. record, because we sort of implied that Yahweh has from the beginning been sort of scheming. I'm not convinced that that's actually the case i think he said he was first because as far as he knew and anyone else knew he was first well he doesn't (laughs) scheme though he starts scheming later as he has to but he begins with very good intentions and as a very noble person but we said that he demanded to be called the first i'm not really that happens later that's that's later yeah not the beginning and that's the point at the beginning everyone's very good natured with each other yeah so yahweh comes up with a plan to protect himself, all of the angels, and all of their friends from future waves. Um, and this is to create a new place. So where the, the place they live, they've called heaven, and he comes with a plan for something called earth, which because, by the nature of how it will be constructed, will be safe from the waves. Its walls will never crack, the primal chaos will never encroach on it, it will never harm anybody. Now the thing that worries him is that the younger generations of angels, many of the second and most particularly the third, because what's happened with each subsequent wave is the generation that is created is more numerous. It's weaker, but there are more of them. So the first wave was seven. The second wave was, you know, probably a couple dozen. The third wave, you're starting to get hundreds appearing. And Yahweh's worried that not a lot of the members of the third wave in particular won't go along with his plan because he fears it might be dangerous. 
He's pretty sure it will be. He's pretty sure it he's will be. He's pretty sure he's, they're going to lose a bunch of He's calculated angels. that you need to spend a certain amount of angelic energy to create Earth. Iliaster. Iliaster, that's right. I mean, basically what mm-hmm. it comes down to is a kill many to save many more scenario. And he's a little torn about that. And he wants to get everybody on board because he knows the good that will ultimately result from this. And so the person he most wants to discuss it with is Satan. Because Satan is, again, one of the first. He, like Yahweh, is very greatly respected. And like Yahweh, is very powerful and intelligent. So he knows that if he can get Satan's support, the other angels will fall in line. And that's kind of where the story begins from. Um, Following that, yeah, there is a scheming angel who is trying to get ahead for his own good. And... Uh, Yahweh trusts him to deliver a message to Satan because one thing that's made very clear is distances are quite great. These beings are eternal, so they don't really need to worry about aging and dying, but it does take them a long time to get word to each other. And so said angel ends up basically corrupting the message and changing it and just not delivering it and certain other things to kind of create a rift between Satan and Yahweh so that he can kind of move in and fill in Satan's position. And the funny thing is, he's not trying to destroy the world or anything. He literally just thinks, oh, this would be a better position to be in. I want it. And so ultimately, it's that one finger's greed that leads to the miscommunication. And then from there, miscommunication piles on miscommunication, and things just spiral out of control. Ultimately, there's a lot of confusion. This leads to conflict. Angels, whether they want to or not, end up picking sides. This leads to violence. This leads to an actual war. And the funny thing is, through this whole thing, Satan hasn't actually committed himself because he hasn't heard what's happening. Yeah, he's trying to actually get to the truth in all this. Satan, yeah, the, the main... For the first part of it, Satan's story arc is just trying to get to the truth and figure out what's going on. And when he finally does, this is the point at which Yahweh has let himself become a little bit power mad. He's formed these orders of angels. More like power paranoid. Yeah, power paranoid <laughs> would be a better way to and phrase it. And on the suggestion of... Someone else. Again, on the suggestion of the manipulative angel, he starts forming these bodyguards, and other angels come in to try to talk to him because they've always had access to him before. And these bodyguards become overzealous, attack them. Well, it's because they're lower orders of angels who suddenly have power to yeah. prevent the entry of higher orders of angels, and they really like that. Mm-hmm. And are implemented as best as they can. So they attack some of Yahweh's friends, among them Lucifer and Lilith, who's one of the second order of angels. Mm -hmm. And so they come to the conclusion that, yeah, Yahweh has gone power mad. We need to, you know, band together and fight this before it all goes wrong. And what's interesting is through the whole thing, Yahweh ultimately maintains the noble purpose of wanting to protect everybody. But as it goes on and as he becomes more power hungry he becomes more selfish in the way he shares that power. He becomes more determined to hold it at any cost. And when it reaches the point of no return, Satan basically comes to the conclusion that he has to def- to stop this. Um, again, some more manipulation happens, and what all... What ultimately comes to is when when Satan find, or when uh, Yahweh finds out he's been manipulated by Abdiel, he basically freaks out. He banishes Abdiel from his sight. He almost destroys him. Abdiel goes running. And then Abdiel, because he's selfish, again, finds a spot where he can tear a hole in the wall. And this prematurely sets off a fourth wave. And the thing is, when the fourth wave happens, this war is in full swing. You've got people fighting each other tooth and nail, and all of a sudden this primal chaos is unleashed to try to destroy everybody. And so from there, 
everyone scrambles. Yahweh takes this as the opportunity to put his plan to action. But because he doesn't have everyone's cooperation and everyone working together, it doesn't quite go the way he was hoping. So what he does is he manages to get it together just enough to work, while the rebelling angels, or the angels who aren't siding with him, form their own home quickly. And they end up naming their new home Hell. Yahweh names his new creation Earth, and heaven just kind of gets destroyed by the primal chaos. Mm -hmm. And the novel ends with a new, a fourth order of angels being born to this planet, Yahweh kind of being mad with power now, and deciding that he's going to create, tell them the story, I guess the familiar Christian creation story of him creating the universe, him creating the angels, him being all-powerful. And Satan's new role is to oppose this lie that drove his friend mad by telling people the truth. What's funny is that Satan finally comes around to do some shit way too late. <laughs> Basically. Literally way too late. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> so that's the basic plot in a very quick summary. Um, just some things I liked about this book. I thought it was an interesting take on this particular story, like we said. I liked how, as I mentioned, it's a story about communication. It's a story of misunderstanding. It's a story of these very powerful, yet at the same time, very naive beings. I mean, they're the first things to exist so far as they know. They have noth nothing else to draw from. No other experience, whether personal or recorded, where they could learn ways of doing things. So as much as they're learning to explore their universe, learning to become or informing friendships, they're also slowly learning what manipulation and mistrust are. And it's sort of set up from the beginning because heaven's divided into like Yahweh's in the center, but there's four four quarters or sort of provinces. And there's Satan in the south and Belial in the north, and I think uh, Leviathan's in the west, and in the east is Lucifer. So, but they'd already sort of set themselves up for communication issues because they made these great big areas far away from each other. <laughs> so yeah. What's funny, too, is there's talk at the beginning of how they're going to build the roads directly to the center from all of these places to make communication easier. Mm -hmm. That's just one of those things that never comes to. Mm -hmm. They get too busy. Even off the planet. Well, at least the initial conflict is framed as a kind of class dispute. Yeah. And the reason communication doesn't happen is because things aren't moving along the proper hierarchical lines I, I, that were established before. Sorry, I, I definitely see how you could interpret this as being a labor dispute. Um, like you said, you've got lower orders of angels being given power over higher orders of angels, and they use this as an opportunity to go a little power crazy. At the same time, when it starts, nobody really views themselves as being superior. They know that the older angels are stronger in using Iliaster, which is kind of the ethereal power they have, but it's not in the sense of, there's no enforced class system. There's a knowledge of power, there's knowledge of age, but there's no knowledge of, oh, you're better because of that. It's just, oh, you're stronger, but we're still equals and friends. Well, that, that changes. That changes in a hurry, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we also see Jesus get made. Yes, yeah, um, we do the first time. Yep, yeah, so first time round. In this universe, Jesus gets made twice. Um, the second time he's made would be the, or is implied to be the kind of. Well, again, within this book, he is made once. Yeah. <laughs> within, sorry, you're right. Within and this, I don't think we should be going outside of what's in this text. You're right. Yes. Within point. this book, Jesus is created, and what, Joshua, I think, is the name. 
they use? Jeshua. Jeshua. Yeah. Yeah, so Jeshua. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Jeshua is not created as the friendly, loving Jesus that the Bible talks about. He's created as a very angry, very jerkish military leader. He's is more, he a jerk? He's, he's more like he doesn't know anything other than He's just the made as Yahweh's biggest fanboy, basically. <laughs> well, this is, is his thing, and that he believes totally that Yahweh is the the, the shit that's the, the thing. whole way through and that supports Yahweh's paranoid point of view that he's losing powers because this guy's like yeah because you're the best well that that's why I read Corner. him as a jerk though because Yahweh ultimately creates him to be his perfect servant and to view him as the god at this point he's come to think of himself as I don't think he made him as a servant I think and he I, just made him as like an an example of a display of power. I don't really point? consider him a jerk. The whole way that he's characterized, I found kind of sad. Yeah, he's just really, he's really kind of doesn't get ramifications of things. And again, I, I read him as very arrogant and very forceful. Like, I mean, again, just yeah. different interpretations. I need to be character. arrogant. You'd have to be in it for yourself. Because he's totally in it for Yahweh is the thing. Mm. Um... Moving on, though, what is kind of a humorous moment in a very dark way is that Yeshua is created, um, Yahweh places him at the command of his army and sends him out to fight the rebel angels, and Lilith, one of the Second Order, who's quite popular with most of the angels, um, she actually... the one who created gender. She is the one who created... Yeah, she, she created herself as a female, so many of the others chose to be male, and that's an actual joke from the beginning. Uh, she stabs Yeshua. So Jesus actually dies in this book in a very grim way. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those moments where it's like, okay, I understand how this would be very offensive if you are quite strongly religious. But at the other hand, if you can look past that and just enjoy the humorousness and the absurdity of it, it is quite funny. Hey, for all you know, it happened this way. And um, Yahweh told Stephen Bruce the truth. Well, Satan told Stephen Bruce the truth. What? Satan would have told him the truth. Potentially. Just saying. <laughs> somebody's told somebody's told maybe. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean Yeshua Yeshua is kind of one interesting character. I think that's one of I think the book's strengths is there are a lot of very interesting characters. And despite the fact that they all have a certain degree of naivete, mm-hmm. I do think they kind of they made it fun. They're really intrinsically themselves because nobody else has been that kind of person before. So they sort mm-hmm. of can't be like a stereotype. It's pretty full of anachronisms. Yeah. For, uh, oh, of course. <laughs> it's a fantasy novel. Maybe yes, but it's taking place in a world before creation, yeah. and people are using idioms and referring back to things that don't yeah. exist yet. Well, and Beelzebub speaks entirely in Shakespearean. Uh, <laughs> and there's text. that owl character who speaks in rhyme. Rhyming couplets. Yes. <laughs> And um, one of the characters I found interesting, because we mentioned how distrust doesn't really exist that strongly at the beginning, um, Mephistopheles is one of the second orders of angels, and he's always described as wearing all black. And for whatever reason, a lot of people don't trust him. Before they've really had a chance to establish a sense of trust and mistrust and, you know, maliciousness, people just don't trust him. Like He has a way with words. Yeah, everyone thinks he's manipulative and that he's always scheming, that he's always trying to get information without giving it, which to some extent is true, but he's also a very genuine character. He's very honest in his own way, as strange as that sounds. He's very caring for his friends. 
And he ultimately, the side of the conflict he ultimately ends up on is with the rebels. But he does that more because he's protecting a small group of friends of his that were forced into that position. Yeah. Yep. And um, another good character. Kind of the only sensible character in the story, actually. He is in many ways, yeah. (laughs) Sort of um, able to keep up with Abdiel Mm -hmm. and understanding what's going on. Well, isn't he just ulti- missing a couple opportunities? I could be wrong because it's been a while, but isn't Mephistopheles the one who ultimately puzzles out what's happening? Doesn't he, I mean, he might kill Abdul actually. I think, think he, about it. I think he strangles Abdul because Abdul yeah. killed the angel who'd been turned oh, into an owl yes. who he was close friends with. Yes, yes. Ariel. Ariel, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And a lot of Abdul's actions later on are trying to cover up and not get. It- not suffer the repercussions yeah. and, and it gets one of those things where it's just totally out of his hands it just goes can't. completely out of control for yeah. him so he, yeah. he lies and then he lies to cover up his lies so naturally it all falls apart yeah and so from this we get like thrones and dominions being made and the uh, seraphim and the cherubim it's kind of funny seeing these things get made as god's creating more and more army divisions <laughs> to do things yeah there's one of those things about this book is it's very comedic. Like mm-hmm. it just the absurdity of what's happening is hilarious. Like there's mm-hmm. all this crazy stuff going on and you can't help but smile at it. A large part of it is brust is it to wordplay. Yeah. Sometimes too much into wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> um the f- I did appreciate the opening of that novel quite a bit though. Mm-hmm. What was the opening again? It um, is written in almost unreadable purple prose mm. until the end that draws it makes it a metaphor mm-hmm. or actually a simile, I guess. Mm-hmm. Person who introduced me to this book described Stephen because I'd never read his work before. Um, but when I was told about it, Stephen Brust was described to me as Roger Zelazny's literary successor, and I can definitely see Zelazny's influence in this book, um, particularly in the humor and in just kind of the drawing on mythology and playing with it and distorting it. It's not quite as bad as the fit hit the shan. No. But at that that being said, Brust <laughs> does have his own distinct style. Like, yeah. he, he, the influence is there, but it's not just a cheap clone. It's kind of too bad that too many people would be offended by the matter in this book, because it's really funny. Even if it was set as, if it was set as like an entirely different group of things, then it would be. So then it would be funny, but then it wouldn't have the sort of pun on the, um, like, story itself mm-hmm. of what's going on because it's as you're reading it it's kind of familiar all the things that are happening if you know anything about christian background well, stuff the, i mean having read this the original version of this story and having read stories that are similar to it the original version sorry, the, which one are you referring to here ooh, you're, right. you're getting into dicey territory <laughs> okay, there let me rephrase that having read <laughs> paradise lost and having studied a lot of english literature there are definitely elements of the story that are very familiar and so as you're reading it, you're like, I wonder when they're going to get to the part where this is supposed to happen. And so that's, I, I found that was constantly in the back of my head is knowing Paradise Lost. Like, okay, well, when does this happen? How does this happen? How is he going to distort this part of it? Mm-hmm. And he's constantly taking these things that you would recognize and just flipping them upside down. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes up, it's like, oh, yeah, he did that. I didn't expect it to be that way, but mm-hmm. he did it. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is taking those key moments and then flipping around the motivations or the mm-hmm. effect of them mm-hmm. well, I, I think to be the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. One of the best examples of that for me, and spoiler alert, 
<laughs> if we didn't get there already, I already summarized the, the plot. Thing. <laughs> One of the best moments of that for me, though, is at the end when Earth is just about to be created and the rebels are just escaping and starting construction on Hell. Um, Mephistopheles is holding Michael, aka Saint Michael the Archangel, hostage. He's got him basically at sword point, and he's. He's backing up while holding Michael at sword point towards this opening that all the rebels have just escaped through. And Mephistopheles is about the last one to go. And so there's Michael, I think, makes some comment about how I destroy you or you're not going to be welcome back here. And Mephistopheles replies, oh, it's okay. I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be with you anyway. And then he jumps through the hole. But in kind of the myth, the original mythology, St. Michael is the one who cast Satan out of paradise. And so he technically did it in this, but instead of him casting them out, he was just the hostage they used to escape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. So I do want to talk about the construction of heaven in this novel, mm-hmm. and knowing that heaven is not all that well described mm-hmm. in biblical passages mm-hmm. beyond there's some gates with pearls maybe yeah, yeah i mean heaven is generally described as paradise or bliss but there's no physical geography to it mm-hmm. there's the barest hints that you can gather from that but that did not stop theologians mm-hmm. and People steeped in and Dante mm-hmm. and Milton from mm-hmm. creating very detailed loads of crap. physical <laughs> descriptions of what heaven looks like. Mm-hmm. It's split, how it slots into the rest of the cosmos, mm-hmm. uh, how you get to and from different places, mm-hmm. where the various angels sit, mm-hmm. and this whole obsession in the Middle Ages with categorizing what the political structure of heaven look like mm. and using heaven as this imaginative space to effectively do world building mm-hmm. over the course of many millennia because ideally heaven would earth would reflect heaven ideally mm. ideally <laughs> well, i mean part of where that kind of world building comes from or heaven is the ideal of what earth should be striving for which is going to be whatever the social order that would be most convenient be. for whoever's making up this thing. But anyway. <laughs> Part of where that kind of world building comes from, too, is when you've only got so much you can work with imaginatively. Like, if you'd created some alternate world where, you know, there's these blue creatures flying through the sky and little green men who wish you well and all this other crazy crap, like, that's not necessarily going to be viewed in the Middle Ages as, oh, just imagination that's going to be viewed as either a sign of madness or possession so considering some of the descriptions of what was in the country three realms away yeah (laughs) (laughs) right but my point being though heaven is this thing that is familiar and yet you can make unfamiliar it's this one thing where because you don't have a sense of what it's supposed to be you have the freedom to be imaginative and literature art always has to work within the confines of its society to some extent and so for the Middle Ages, I think it's fair to say that would be the confine. Was there a particular point of the construction of heaven that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> it's the lens through which heaven is constructed, because with Milton, it's trying to take classical sources mm. and reform how heaven looks like through classical myth mm-hmm. and incorporating those names and elements mm-hmm. into your own 
greater piece of world building and create slotting things into mythology for burst what is he trying to do that's the question i want to ask what oh. is he trying to do with the world building that he's doing in terrain and hell i think he's trying because to a them. lot of the novel is focused on physical descriptions and well, like the north is kind of like place. the north is mountainy and the west <sighs> is watery and east uh well i guess lucifer's in it and stuff and the south's kind of yeah, but Dry? what I mean is that the actual plot of the novel is about saving this place, right. mm-hmm. this construction, the creation of a new universe, mm-hmm. or universes, I guess. Yeah, I think the physical description is doing a number of things. I mean, first off, it is used as kind of a setting to this narrative. Um, it, it gives it a, a physical place you can ground a story in. I think it's very hard to conceive of a story set nowhere. That's not to say people haven't done it and haven't tried with varying degrees of success, but just having a physical location gives you something to ground it in. Um, I think it also establishes a background, like you said, for a labor dispute. It, it, it establishes very physical boundaries and physical expectations. And so in doing that, it gives you something to kind of have disgruntlement and fight over. Are trying to think that suggests that heaven is earth and earth is heaven? That the, the heaven constructed sounds a lot like... Well, that's ultimately what they're trying to do, though, because they're trying mm-hmm. to create a paradise, or to their minds, a paradise free of mm-hmm. the chaos, mm-hmm. and that's going to be Earth, even mm-hmm. though they live in heaven. Mm-hmm. That was the idea I was trying to get to. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> yeah. what is it about the world that makes you think it's Earth? Uh, the buildings and so forth, and what they're recalling basically mm. physical culture mm. in heaven mm. it's just kind of late bronze age mm-hmm. era mm-hmm. <laughs> very uh, detailed descriptions of furniture at some points so oh, yeah. <laughs> yes not quite as bad as robert jordan <laughs> yeah it's more that it's all being related back to reminding you of things in Earth's mm-hmm. history as opposed to trying to create something weird out of whole mm. cloth. Yeah. And the effect and what that's supposed to mean, which we've already gotten to. <laughs> well, I mean, making things familiar, it's, it's a very simple way of reminding the audience that you're doing more than just telling a story. It's, it's a way of saying, hey, this actually relates to your life. This isn't just fun entertainment. It's a bit of a cheap trick for making a point, maybe a bit condescending at times, but I don't think it was too bad in this novel. Like, I I never felt patronized by it. I think it's kind of a funny joke where if you're not... If the new place was going to be called Earth, but what is actually Earth from our conception is the thing they left behind, and that then their their new place would technically be heaven by the end of being there and the, the complete lack of clarity and uncertainty there sort of suggestive of uh, the planner of all this, <laughs> even more so. <laughs> What's kind of funny, too, is it ultimately builds on that old cliche that you always hear somebody using to comfort a character in a movie or TV show when someone else dies. Oh, they've gone to a better place. This whole book is a group of characters just trying to go to a better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you consider Terrain in Hell, based on its title, as in a direct dialogue with Milton? I think that's a fair interpretation. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I don't think it's responding exclusively to Milton. I think you know a few hundred years, it's had a little more. There's enough time has passed that there's more that Brust was probably thinking about. But I, I do think that yes, it is 
on some level at least a response to Paradise Lost. Yeah, I think so. Was there anything else he wanted to talk about? <laughs> um, a golden retriever that talks in Shakespearean is the most cutest thing. Beelzebub's, yeah. That's actually one of the great things about this book. It's not necessarily the main characters who are constantly in your face. It's all the little side ones who just do cute things. Mm-hmm. Beelzebub is a golden retriever. is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's these two characters who every chapter, there's at least a few sections where they're having dialogue. <laughs> and they're basically your classic Shakespearean clowns, where these sections exist just for them to make some wisecracks, but to also provide... Exposition. Pers- <laughs> well, it's to provide exposition, but to also provide a perspective on the plot that isn't that of the main character. Like, this is supposed to be for the benefit of everybody. Well, they're literally the perspective of everyone else who isn't one of the main characters. And it's they so don't s- have any idea what's going on. And it's so sad when they get put on opposite sides of this argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that moment. I think they get back together at the end, though. They kind of do, but in doing so, they both die. Yeah. Yeah. But no, again, it's... I had a lot of fun reading this book. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend it. I do think there's enough in there to think about, and if nothing else, it is good for a couple laughs. It is, it is kind of frustrating, because you're like, this would be so easy to solve partway mm-hmm. through, but but he keeps you going through it with the puns. I wonder yeah. It's pretty short. Yeah, <laughs> and it's pretty short. I wonder if that's meant to actually be a dark irony. Mm-hmm. Because here's this, like you said, it, it would be so easy to solve, and you as a lowly human reader can tell that, mm-hmm. but the quote-unquote gods in this book can't. Still a human author, so yeah. shrug. Very yeah. <laughs> <laughs> profound there, Corey. Very. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, no, good book. Recommend it. That was our discussion of Terrain in Hell by Stephen Brust. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher Radio. You can also visit my blog, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. I can be found online at fromspeechfire.wordpress.com. And I'm yatropexy.wordpress.com, which you're never going to be able to spell. But anyway... <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, recommend it. We'll be back someday. Someday. <laughs> maybe maybe not crammed together in a hotel. That was our discussion of Stephen Burst to Rain in Hell. Brust, burst, burst, brust. Brust, brust, Stephen Brust. Do you want to just redo that part? <laughs> <laughs>